are very serious about where we stand on this issue and that all we want to do is to work together so that we can get to the yes the yes on both of these measures they're vitally important they're interconnected and the country needs all of it before the procedure i remember going in for counseling and being told that if i move forward with this pregnancy my baby would be jacked up because the fetus was already malnourished and underweight being told that if i had this baby i would wind up on food stamps and welfare I was being talked to like trash and it worsened my shame. Future historians may very well conclude that this U.S.-U.K.-Australia deal is a kind of circling of the wagons by the initial beneficiaries of settler colonialism and U.S. imperialism. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, progressives in Congress held the line Thursday night and refused their votes for an infrastructure bill with only a half billion dollars in new spending for roads, bridges, water, broadband, and other services, saying they would not pass it without an agreement to pass a human infrastructure bill known as the Build Back Better Act that will spend $3.5 trillion over the next 10 years to provide funding for child care, free community college, expanded Medicare, and to address the climate catastrophe. In the Senate, there are two Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who are actually standing in the way of the Democrats using their slim majority to pass the legislation. Joining me to discuss these dramatic developments on Thursday night is John Jeter, on the grounds media analyst and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Esther. Well, John, my first reaction is that, you know, after being you know slapped around by corporate Democrats for the last two election cycles and being castigated by many on the left for not using their numbers to pressure the right wing of Congress, it looks like members of the Progressive Caucus finally drew a line in the sand and you know, made a stand for working families in this country. Yeah, it would appear so. I wonder if the theatrics of recent weeks, especially with you know AOC voting present at the vote in the House to fund the Iron Shield for the Israeli occupation, the stunt with the dress at the Met Gala, which screened tax the rich. I wonder if these kinds of stunts aren't really sort of putting more pressure on the progressives to deliver something of value other than just these theatrics. I don't know, obviously, but I suspect that's what's happening, particularly with the Democrats who, you know, have really been dancing this dance for about 30 years now of being the party of working people and delivering absolutely nothing of value. Well, I do know that they definitely caught heat at the end of last year, uh, going into this year, when they did not force the vote, hashtag force the vote on Medicare for all, 
And there were people like Jimmy Dore, the talk show host, really spearheading that movement and really castigating people like AOC and, you know, the members we call the squad for not forcing the vote on Medicare because they had the numbers to deny Nancy Pelosi the speakership and to, um, you know, basically, you know, uh, uh, force members of Congress to to vote up or down whether they would expand uh, Medicare. Well, on on also on Thursday night, CNN reported that Bernie Sanders uh, came out of a meeting with Democratic leadership, unhappy with Manchin's offer to cut the already compromised amount of this $3.5 trillion package to cut another $2 trillion to just $1.5 trillion. And this report said that when Bernie gave the thumbs down that many members of the house who actually joined Congress as part of, you know, the Bernie wave of people who wanted to, you know, be a different type of legislator in Congress that they stood firm in their refusal to vote for the bill. And Representative Bonnie Coleman Watson of New Jersey, not I certainly don't count her as kind of like one of the, the Bernie people. She spoke to CNN last night uh, saying why she was one of the people holding the line and not voting for this bill. We want to make sure that the substance is responsive to what we agreed to, to what we thought the deal was, and to what our families, our women, our children, our elderly need on so many different levels. It's from education to health care to opportunities, job opportunities, to child tax credits, as well as climate investment. So it isn't just the top line. It isn't just the money. We want to make sure that the substance is there as well. That's Representative Bonnie Coleman Watson of New Jersey. And she was very firm and and maybe very diplomatic about saying how people want the same things. But when I listen to some of the statements made on Thursday or this week, I, I really wonder if that's true. Progressives say that they aren't going to build bridges for Americans to live under them. I heard Manchin tell reporters Thursday, basically, if you all want to spend more money, you need to elect more liberals. And it was only on Thursday that he actually came up with another number. So for much of this week, neither he nor Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, had even responded in terms of a counter number for this. And so that's one of the things that made the, the progressives really uncomfortable. It was like, you know, negotiating with a mummy. No one was talking back to them. So it wasn't really a negotiation with another side. So, I mean, I mean, what do you think about this when you look at these two sides? And I know we have to wrap it up, but, you know, are we witnessing like kind of a more fundamental split that may be long term in the Democratic Party? Well, the, the short answer is yes. I think that we are getting closer by the day to uh, a reckoning in the United States. It's been a long time coming and has been sped up, accelerated by COVID and by the Great Recession that began in 2008. To respond to what Senator Manchin said when he says that uh, uh, we need to elect more liberals, actually, that's the problem. We have too many liberals uh, in Congress uh, and who are part of our political class. And I think it was C.L.R. James who said, you know, the imprimatur of a liberal is the smallness of his ideas. 
And I think that's the problem is that we have two parties that are unwilling to respond to the actual problems of the American people. And we have a media that is unwilling or unable, probably unable, to ask the critical questions. And the critical question for this infrastructure bill, this Build Back Better, the critical question is, or the critical tension, is that even if it's passed as written, it's insufficient by a factor of at least 100. When you consider that for the last 13 years since the Great Recession began, we've been, the, the, the Treasury has been effectively printing the profits for our banks because people don't have it anymore. We're over leveraged, we're in debt, and people can't actually sustain uh, a demand economy with their spending because we don't have it. We got bills to pay, we got rent, we got car payments, we got college debt. And that's the fundamental problem. This And this uh, infrastructure bill doesn't come anywhere close to addressing that fundamental problem. It is a positive step, but it is, and forgive me, I know I've probably said this before, uh, but it's my uh, one of my favorite go-to phrases only because it's true. This is akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So yeah, we're getting very close to, I think, that reckoning. Uh, it's not going to be pretty. And um, I, I'm curious really how the country will articulate its displeasure with our political class as a whole, not just Democrats, not just Republicans, but everyone. And let me just say this too, Esther, situations like this where you have politicians bickering over something that's not particularly transformative, not transformative at all, it's, it's transactional and, and only slightly that, right? But this and the theater of that and the, the real suffering that's not being addressed, this is why so many people don't believe in the vaccine. They don't believe in the country anymore. That's what that's about. And so, yeah, you know, uh, again, to answer your question, yes, we're, we're approaching a very real reckoning because people have lost faith in the United States of America. A lot of people, uh, many of them black, haven't had it for a long time. But we're seeing more and more people, I think, really give up on the United States. And the question then becomes, what is to be done now? We just came through here in D.C., as well as 50 other cities, demonstrations around the fact that the, the Supreme Court reversed the eviction moratorium. And so we have millions of people who, who may be evicted starting this weekend. The other thing that's happened is that while they are bickering over this, basically $350 billion a year over 10 years, they just approved... <laughs> more than 700 billion a year for the Pentagon. Pentagon and we know that's, right. that's a that's a conservative estimate because it doesn't include many other agencies with parts of the so-called defense budget which takes it really over a trillion a year. Right. So these two issues as well as just the ongoing pandemic and just the the way that the pandemic has been a teaching lesson for so many people in terms of that's made us look at life differently. I think that adds to that reckoning that you're talking about, but we do have to go. Thank you, John, for joining me to talk about this. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Esther.
An unmet challenge of progressives in Congress and of the Biden administration is to humanize the Build Back Better Act. Even though the COVID pandemic has magnified already existing inequities in income, health care, education, food access, and housing, with the CDC eviction moratorium struck down by the Supreme Court, rallies to cancel the rents were held in 60 cities from Friday, September 24th to Sunday, September 26th. In front of the White House on Saturday, Olivia from Code Pink, Women for Peace, connected the issues of housing and immigration and the U.S. military budget. Join us in in advocating for our neighbors for housing and to also not accept that we cannot pay for these things. We can pay for it all as the wealthiest country in the world, but instead we are fueling the military contractors and we are fueling the fossil fuel industries. Join us to cut the Pentagon and support each other instead of the big corporations. Organizers for canceled events have three demands for Congress to pass an indefinite moratorium on evictions that covers 100% of the country for authorities at all levels to dramatically speed up the distribution of already allocated renter relief funds and for Congress to cancel the rents and wipe out all rent and mortgage debt accumulated during the pandemic. You can find their full platform at canceltherents.org. Other actions for human rights included a solidarity rally to support indigenous people still protesting the just-completed illegal Line 3 tar sands pipeline in northern Minnesota and calls for a solidarity with Haitian asylum seekers. Lydia Curtis has more. The treatment of Haitian migrants at the U.S. border was addressed as a group of advocates rallied to express unity and solidarity with Haiti at Black Lives Matter Plaza, Washington, D.C., on Sunday, September 26th. This coalition, which included representatives from the National Action Network, the National Black United Front, the D.C. Democratic Party, and other groups, pledged to work together to stop deportations and the racist mistreatment of Haitians and other vulnerable groups. Claudette Davis gave this update. We're still asking for due process because asylum is a human right. So call your members of Congress and ask that you don't deport the Haitian migrants because they're still here. Even though you don't see them under the bridge, the number to call your member of Congress, just the general number is 202-224-3121. 202-224-3121. Giles Charleston, president of the Association of Haitian Professionals, pointed out that intentional policy decisions are hurting the Haitian people. Because if the policies don't change, today is Haitian, tomorrow will be someone else. We've seen the Venezuelan as well. It is all part of that connection of the agenda. The policies are not working. If policies are not working, they need to change. And you are part, each one of you here, you are part of that movement to make the change happen. He went on to say that there are proxies on the ground in Haiti that do not speak for the Haitian people. And there are criminal gangs that are getting illegal arms from the United States. Quote, we need to stop the flow of illegal arms and ammunition. Then the Haitian people can begin to solve their own problems. Title 42 of the Public Health Service Act of 1944, which, according to Human Rights Watch, was designed to confer quarantine authority to the president and the attorney general, 
to all people entering the United States from foreign countries is now being illegally applied at the border to certain groups of people. Ward 8 ANC Commissioner Salim Adolfo urged the community to contact their elected officials on Capitol Hill to demand an end to the racist deportations. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. Abortion rights also took center stage this week as members of Congress, Representative Cori Bush, Representative Barbara Lee, and Representative Pramila Jayapal all told their personal stories about abortion during a hearing on abortion laws before the House Oversight and Reform Committee. Reproductive justice activists organized campaigns for women to tell their stories of ending a pregnancy to break the silence and end the shame or stigma that society heaps onto the subject of abortion. The hearing was prompted by a passage of a new law in Texas which in effect bans abortions because it calls for abortions to be carried out before most women realize or know that they are pregnant. It also deputizes and financially rewards any citizen who turns in someone seeking or performing an abortion or assisting with the process of ending a pregnancy. We'll hear more of their voices after the headlines. And finally, in culture and media, Yahoo News reported this week that senior officials of the Trump administration and CIA conspired to plan kidnapping, rendition, or even assassination scenarios against WikiLeaks founder and publisher Julian Assange. These revelations consisted of a vengeful CIA responding to WikiLeaks Vault 7 revelations of CIA hacking tools to commandeer computers, phones, TVs, and even car computer systems of any targeted individual anywhere in the world. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. and I thank you, Chairwoman Maloney, for convening this urgent hearing. It is an honor to join Congresswomen Lee, Jayapal, and Chu as part of today's panel. And I also want to thank my sister, Congresswoman Presley, for her leadership in this hearing, and to my sisters in service for being here with me today, and my brother. In the summer of 1994, I was a young girl, all of 17 years old, and had just graduated high school. Like so many black girls during that time, I was obsessed with fashion and gold jewelry and how I physically showed up in the world. But I was also very lost. For all of my life, I had been a straight A student with dreams of attending college 
and becoming a nurse. But high school early on was difficult for me. I was discriminated against, bullied, and as time passed, my grades slipped and along with it, the dream of attaining a full scholarship to a historically black college. That summer, I was just happy that I passed my classes and that I finished high school. Shortly after graduating, I went on, to a, on a church trip to Jackson, Mississippi. I had many friends on that trip and while there, I met a boy a friend of a friend. He was a little older than I was, about maybe 20 years old. That first day we met, we flirted, we talked on the phone. While on the phone, he asked me, could he come over to my room? I was bunking with a friend and hanging out and said he could stop by. But he didn't show up for a few hours and by the time he did, it was so late that my friend and I had gone to bed. I answered the door and quietly told him he could come in, imagining that we would talk and laugh like we had done over the phone. But the next thing I knew, he was on top of me, messing with my clothes and not saying anything at all. What is happening? I thought, I didn't know what to do. I, I was frozen in shock, just laying there as his weight pressed down upon me. When he was done, he got up, he pulled up his pants, and without a word, he left. That was it. I was confused, I was embarrassed, I was ashamed. I asked myself, was it something that I had done? The next morning, I wanted to talk to him. I, I just wanted to say something to him, but he refused to talk to me. By the time that trip ended, we still hadn't spoken at all. About a month after the trip, I turned 18. A few weeks later, I realized I had missed my period. I reached out to a friend and asked the guy from the church trip to contact, contact me. I waited for him to reach out, but he never did. I never heard from him. I, I was 18, I was broken, I felt so alone. I blamed myself for what had happened to me. But I knew I had options. I had known other girls who had gone to a local clinic to get birth control and some who had gotten abortions. So I looked through the yellow pages and scheduled an appointment. During my first visit, I found out that I was nine weeks, nine weeks pregnant and then there the panic set in. How could I make this pregnancy work? How could I? at 18 years old and barely scraping by, support a child on my own and, and and I would have been on my own. I was stressed out knowing that the father wouldn't be involved and that I, I feared my parents would kick me out of the home. The best parents in the world, but I feared, feared they would kick me out. My dad was a proud father and always bragging about his little girl and how he knew I would go straight to college and become attorney general. That was his, his goal for me. So with no scholarship intact and college out of the foreseeable future, I couldn't bear the thought of disappointing my dad again. I knew it was a decision I had to make for myself, so I did. My abortion happened on a Saturday. There were a few other people in the clinic room, waiting room, including one other young black girl. I overheard the clinic staff talking about her saying she had ruined her life, and that's what they do, they being black girls like us. Before the procedure, I remember going in for counseling and being told that if I move forward with this pregnancy, my baby would be jacked up because the fetus was already malnourished and underweight. Being told that if I had this baby, I would wind up on food stamps and welfare. 
I was being talked to like trash and it worsened my shame. Afterwards, while in the changing area, I heard some girls, all white, talking about how they were told how bright their futures were, how loved their babies would be if they adopted, and that their options and their opportunities were limitless. In that moment, listening to those girls, I felt anguish. I felt like I had failed. I went home, my body ached, and I had this heavy bleeding. I felt so sick. I felt dizzy, nauseous. I felt like something was missing. I felt alone, but I also felt so resolved in my decision. Choosing to have an abortion was the hardest decision I had ever made. But at 18 years old, I knew it was the right decision for me. It was freeing knowing I had options. Even still, it took long for me to feel like me again until most recently when I decided to give this speech. So to all the black women and girls who have had abortions and will have abortions, we have nothing to be ashamed of. We live in a society that has failed to legislate love and justice for us. So we deserve better. We, de- we demand better. We are worthy of better. So that's why I'm here to tell my story. So today I sit before you as that nurse, as that pastor, as that pastor, as that activist, that survivor, that single mom, that congresswoman to testify that in the summer of 1994, I was raped, I became pregnant, and I chose to have an abortion. I yield. Chairwoman Maloney and Ranking Member Comer, thank you for inviting me to speak today. I speak to you as one of the one in four women in America who have had an abortion. And for you to understand how I ultimately decided to have an abortion, I have to start earlier with the birth of my first child, Janak. Janak was born at 26 and a half weeks while I was on a two-year fellowship living in India. They weighed only one pound, 14 ounces, and upon birth went down to a weight of just 21 ounces. Janak was so small, they fit in the palm of my hand the size of a medium-sized squash. For three months, we did not know if Janak would live or die. They needed multiple blood transfusions, had to be fed drop by drop, and constantly had their heart stop and start. We returned to the United States after three months. In those early, intensely difficult years, Janak had hydroencephalus, water on the brain, seizures, and repeatedly returned to the emergency room because of life-threatening pneumonia. The fact that Janak is a 25-year-old beautiful human being is a true miracle and the greatest gift in my life. At the same time that Janak was born, I was also fighting to keep my legal permanent resident status, married to a U.S. citizen with a U.S. citizen child now. In the end, I was able to return to the United States with Janak, provided that I started from scratch to qualify for citizenship. As a new mom taking care of a very sick baby and recovering from major surgery myself, I was struggling. I experienced severe postpartum depression and post-traumatic stress disorder that was only diagnosed after I contemplated suicide and realized I needed to seek help. My marriage did not survive. We split custody of Janak and I was a part-time single parent. Shortly after, I met a wonderful man who is my husband today. I knew I was not ready to have another child, so I religiously took my daily contraceptive pill. Despite that, I became pregnant. I consulted with my doctors who told me that any future pregnancy would likely also be high risk to me and the child, similar to what I had gone through with Janak. 
I very much wanted to have more children, but I simply could not imagine going through that again. After discussions with my partner, who was completely supportive of whatever choice I made, I decided to have an abortion. Two decades later, I think about those moments on the table in the doctor's office. A doctor who was kind and compassionate and skilled, performing abortions in a state that recognizes a person's constitutional right to make their choices about their reproductive care. For me, terminating my pregnancy was not an easy choice, the most difficult I've made in my life. But it was my choice, and that is what must be preserved for every pregnant person. Until 2019, I never spoke publicly or privately about my abortion. In fact, I did not even tell my mother about it. Some of it was because as an immigrant from a culture that deeply values children and in an American society that still stigmatizes abortion, suicide, and mental health needs, I felt shame that I never should have felt. Two years ago, I decided to tell my story as a member of Congress because I was so deeply concerned about the abortion ban legislation that was coming out from states across the country. Today, I am testifying before you because I want you to know that there are so many different situations that people face in making these choices. Whether the choice to have an abortion is easy or hard, whether there are traumatic situations or not, none of that should be the issue. It is simply nobody's business what choices we as pregnant people make about our own bodies. And let me be clear, I would never tell people who don't choose to have an abortion that they should do so nor should they tell me that I shouldn't. This is a constitutionally protected, intensely personal choice. I did not suffer the economic issues that so many poor and black and brown and Latinx people suffer. I did not suffer from living in a state that does not allow pregnant people to make these choices. And unlike one of my colleagues who is testifying today, I had the privilege of experiencing the world in a post-Roe v. Wade time where abortion was established as a constitutional right. Because of the cruel Texas abortion ban and the other state abortion bans currently being litigated by those unaffected by the outcome, many people may not have the same choice as I did. That is unacceptable. Abortion bans are not just a political issue. They do real harm to people across the country and in our most vulnerable communities. I am so proud today to be testifying alongside fellow women of color members of Congress about the need to protect our right to control our bodies. It is time to make the Women's Health Protection Act law, to repeal the Hyde Amendment, and to remove the stigma around abortion care and reproductive health choices. I thank you for the time, and I yield back. That was Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington State and Representative Cory Bush of Missouri speaking during a hearing on abortion laws before the House Oversight and Reform Committee on September 30th, 2021. Reproductive justice activists organized campaigns for women to tell their stories of ending a pregnancy to break the silence and end the shame or stigma that society heaps onto the subject of abortion. The hearing was prompted by a passage of a new law in Texas, which in effect bans abortions because it calls for abortions to be carried out before most women realize or know that they are pregnant. 
It also deputizes and financially rewards any citizen who turns in someone seeking or performing an abortion or assisting with the process of ending a pregnancy. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is for my sister Sarah, honey. I'm so sorry you were hurt. This is for the dawn. Mama took a knock, had to change the locks. Dusted up and brushed off, and I watched talk about a boss. For the holders of a shred of heart, even when you want to fall apart. When you're surrounded by the fall, treaded water in an ice cold dark. When they got you feeling like a box, running from another pack of dogs. Put the pistol and the fist up in the air, we are dead, swear to God. Black child in America, the fact that I made this magic. Black and beautiful, the world broke my mama hard and she died an addict. God bless me to redeem her in my thoughts, words, and my actions. Satisfaction for the devil, goddammit, he'll never ever have it. This is for the do-gooders that the no-gooders use and then abuse. For the truth-tellers tied to the whipping post, left deep battle cruise. For the boys whose body hung from a tree like a piece of strange fruit. Go hard, last word to the fire squad was This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And despite the historic fight happening now in the U.S. for an expanded investment in American workers and families, there was also much happening on the international front. And to discuss it all, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, we certainly have been discussing Meng Wangzhu, the CFO of the Chinese tech giant Huawei, since she was illegally arrested on orders of the United States in Vancouver, Canada, nearly three years ago. Well, now she's released. She walked out of one of her Vancouver mansions a week ago, arrived in China, where she received a red carpet welcome. And when we last spoke, uh, we mentioned Meng's case as an example of the type of arbitrary detention piracy by the United States, similar to the Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab being held in kind of a black site in Cape Verde, or the plane of Evo Morales being forced to land several years ago because he was suspected of harboring Edward Snowden. But at this moment, you know, as the U.S. kind of continues to wrap up this Cold War against China, what else do you think is important to note about the release of Meng Wanzhou? Well, I think what's important to note is that in retaliation for her arrest, the Chinese authorities immediately seized two Canadian nationals. The two Michaels is their term that they're used to describe them. And this was an obvious retaliation as evidenced by the fact that when Meng was released by the U.S. authorities and the Canadian authorities, the Chinese released the two Michaels, and at the same time, the Chinese had detained two U.S. nationals, two Chinese-American nationals. They were forbidden to leave China, and they too were allowed to flee from China after she was released. And I think that the lesson that should be imparted and should be understood on this side of the Pacific is that if the North Americans detained improperly one Chinese, you know, the Chinese will detain 
two of their nationals. And I'm afraid to say that that may be the only language that these North Americans understand. But in response, this is being termed hostage diplomacy. But I think it's also a reflection of the fact that the Cold War is heating up. We see that in the meeting that's taking place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as we speak, between high-level authorities, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and their counterparts from the European Union. The meeting is a so-called trade and technology meeting designed to further encircle China and seek to starve it of technology, which is going to be difficult since in many fields, the Chinese are actually leading, particularly in perhaps the most important field of the 21st century, speaking of artificial intelligence. However, we should also know that Huawei, the telecommunications giant based in China, is still in the crosshairs. They're still being investigated. And I should also say that China in a sense, is responding domestically. Uh, President Xi Jinping is being accused on this side of the Pacific of inaugurating a a new so-called Maoist phase in China. But I think what's happening is that under this slogan of common prosperity, China finally is seeking to try to redistribute the wealth from top to bottom, uh, forcing many of these giants in China to fork over billions of dollars to the state coffers And I think as well that the North American authorities need to think very clearly and deeply about this new descriptor they've applied to China. They call it Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. And that's named after the Chinese movie Wolf Warrior 2, which I have seen and I would recommend to your audience because it does portray a more aggressive China that's willing to step on the toes, to put it mildly, of their North Atlantic competitors. But once again, I think it's a reflection of the fact that the tables are turned, that the U.S. and North Atlantic authorities really cannot dictate to the People's Republic of China. And that's a very difficult reality to swallow. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the common prosperity theme commented on by President G. And it just makes me think about the fact that right now, Congress is debating, you know, this comparatively small measure to increase the common prosperity here in the United States. And it's highly debated. It's people who are lawmakers who are opposing it are considered called moderates by the corporate media, not conservatives or not right-wing fanatics. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it's an interesting juxtaposition right at this moment, um, given everything that's going on here in Washington. Well, the other thing that happened this week is that Yahoo News broke the story that these same people in the Trump administration that made these gangster moves uh, against Hmong, you know, kidnapping her. um, I'm talking about uh, former Secretary of State, former CIA Director Mike Pompeo, that these same folks also hatched a plot to kidnap and possibly assassinate WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, supposedly in retribution for the release of the so-called Vault 7 files of CIA secrets. And so I'm wondering, because we've been talking about 20 years after 9-11, if the blueprint for you know kidnapping, 
imprisoning, you know, torturing people. Uh, this playbook that's been carried on for the past 20 years has normalized this type of rogue behavior, you know, to people in this country, to people living in the U.S., and that it's, it's become normalized. Well, I'm afraid that Washington does not recognize what the rest of the world has sensed, which is that there has been a precipitous decline of the potency and strength of U.S. imperialism. And Washington is still acting as if we are in the late 1990s. But that era is long behind us. We see this as well with regard to this attempt to encircle China. Now, India supposedly is going to be a key link in this encirclement. You saw that Prime Minister Modi was in the White House just a few days ago. Yet, if you can believe it, Washington may be on the verge of imposing sanctions on India because India, which has a long time, long term relationship with Russia, is slated to purchase this S 400 anti aircraft battery from Russia. And according to a certain interpretation of U.S. law, that calls for sanctions against India, which is now needed to encircle China. Likewise, Turkey is also slated to buy this S-400 system and too is slated for a ratcheting up of sanctions. That may help to explain why just the other day, President Erdogan was in Sochi, Russia, meeting with President Putin. And I think it's fair to say that uh, President Erdogan is not necessarily buddy-buddy uh, with Washington right now, right now because he feels quite credibly that when there was an attempt to overthrow him in a coup in the summer of 2016, that Washington's fingerprints were all over that coup. But once again, yeah. I think that Washington is overestimating the strength of U.S. imperialism. That's leading to a certain kind of recklessness. And you see that as well <laughs> with regard to what we talked about the last time we had a discussion, which is the deal with Australia, where the United States swept in and knocked aside and elbowed aside France, which thought it had a submarine deal with Australia. But it turns out that they didn't. And that is obviously alienated France. And once again, Washington will need the European Union, where France plays a preeminent role in order to encircle China successfully. But apparently they're not thinking through these basic fundamental items. You know, when you said that, it just reminded me, I keep going, when we discuss this, the U.S. on the international stage or the actions of so many of these uh, people in these in the U.S. administrations, I keep thinking about this whole analogy to the playground, you know, like just growing up, you know, as a kid in Philadelphia or something, because there's certain things you learn about life on the playground. You learn about the bully. You learn about just those things you just talked about, like keeping your friends close and not betraying your friends or that you can't at one point kind of slap somebody around and then 
So expect them to be your friend. Just kind of all those basic things that you learn as a child. It just seems like when I watch these people on the international stage that, I don't know, maybe they went to some elite private school where they never like had to deal with the, the lessons of the playground or something. Anyway, speaking of the last 20 years, because I was just thinking about the actions of the CIA, so much of the questioning and responses I heard of Pentagon brass this week before testifying before Congress this week seemed to pass the buck about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and it, a lot of it, a lot of the discussion, a lot of the interrogation seemed to keep up this narrative that confines all the discussion about the Afghanistan war to like the final weeks and the American exit which all the corporate media, of course, has you know denounced as a fiasco, uh, and they're pinning this all on Biden, uh, and and in effect pinning the whole war on Biden, and uh, allowing the military-industrial complex, all these defense contractors, allowing the Pentagon to basically get off the hook for the the whole war, and then not to mention uh, the the Bush administration, George W. Bush, who was just roundly um, heckled uh, at a recent uh, Los Angeles um, uh, speaking engagement. So anyway, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on any of that testimony from uh, Mark Milley, Lloyd Austin, and Kenneth McKenzie also was there, who was the commander of the U.S. Central Command. Well, clearly it represents the theme that I'm pressing today, which is the decline of U.S. imperialism, the fact that U.S. imperialism was soundly and roundly defeated by these religious zealots known as the Taliban. And obviously, there was a certain kind of dishonesty uh, at those hearings. What I'm referring to is that, as your audience knows more than most, this intervention in Afghanistan actually began under Jimmy Carter in the 1970s in order to weaken a left-leaning regime in Kabul so as to entice the Soviet Union to intervene, which it did, and then weaken the Soviet Union, which is a factor leading to its collapse by 1991. And even if you take at face value the rather facile testimony that you heard this week, it's difficult to swallow. I'm, I'm referring, for example, to the fact that Lloyd Austin, the Pentagon chief, said that he was shocked and surprised by the fact that the Afghanistan military would not fight the way that he expected them to fight. Although not only internal Pentagon and CIA reports have been reporting at length about the weaknesses of that military, but even the Washington Post, as recently as December 2020, had lengthy stories about the same thing. But Back to the CIA, I have to say, I remain fascinated by the submarine deal with uh, France, Australia, UK, and the US. And one of the, the points that struck me is that there are those who are suggesting that Australia decided to elbow aside France and sign up with the United States because they feared that there would be a more decided US intervention in their internal affairs if they did not do so. And what right. that reminded me of is a movie I would recommend to your audience, The Falcon and the Snowman, one of Sean Penn's best performances, which talks about a similar episode 
1975, when the Labour government in Canberra under Gulf Whitland was basically ousted because of U.S. machinations, because of a fear that that government had moved too decisively to the left. So this is the price that one pays if one is a so-called ally of U.S. imperialism. You basically become a vassal state, and that's a position that France does not want to be in. And keep in mind that we inherited the term chauvinism from France. And so you definitely do not expect France to become a vassal state of U.S. imperialism. Well, it's interesting you just mentioned France because the last thing I wanted to ask you is about is circling back to the whole idea about the recent submarine deal that kind of fell apart for France with Australia. And, you know, if we're able to tie these uh, Pentagon officials also, and, and also if we're able to tie these Pentagon officials back to our original topic, and that being China, though there is the veneer of a kind of kiss and makeup between President Biden and President Macron of France, there is still, you know, a lot of, I guess I would just say raw nerves over Australia breaking up that $66 billion deal with France for submarines and instead contracting with the U.S., which is kind of like, you know, also people kind of these imperial powers kind of fighting over their scraps at at this point. But as we wind down, I'm wondering, you know, what is the deeper impact of the deeper impact on the traditional U.S. European allies? And I've been reading a little bit about how some people feel like this is kind of a 21st century of the kind of Anglo-Saxons banding together to fight, not, I don't want to call it the rise of China, but the with the reemergence of China, because we know that for centuries, China was this uh, a leading exporter and just country in the world. So what do you think about that? Well, future historians, assuming that we escape uh, climate change and nuclear war, may very well conclude that this U.S.-U.K.-Australia deal is a kind of circling of the wagons by the initial beneficiaries of settler colonialism and U.S. imperialism. That is to say that as their time at center stage is eclipsing, they're banding together. And I find it quite striking that excluded from this deal was not only France, which of course was a major beneficiary as well, but Canada and New Zealand, the latter two states, being part of the so-called Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Agreement that also has included the UK, the US, and Australia. And I think they were excluded because the progressive forces are rather strong in both Ottawa and in Wellington, New Zealand, and therefore they're not perceived as being reliable. I would also uh, urge the hotheads in Washington to be pay careful and close attention to some of the news out of Germany. About eight days ago, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, there was an article to discuss how Chancellor Merkel in late January 2021, early February 2021, refused to call from Joe Biden. And I think that's a reflection of the fact 
that Germany, which has China as a major trading partner, is not necessarily interested in this new Cold War II. And likewise, in the current issue of Der Spiegel, the German publication, Chancellor Merkel's top foreign policy advisor echoes that uh, spurned phone call and adds a further point that I think our friends on the left need to pay attention to, which is that he's purging the term the West from his vocabulary, which is sort of an artificial term anyway. It's sort of using geography as a cover-up for race and settler colonialism and imperialism and all the other horrors Mm. of today. (laughs) And uh, I think that it's understandable why he's retiring that term, because I think that Cold War II is basically going to be spearheaded by the so-called AUKUS bloc, and others are going to hold their coats, particularly France and Germany, as they enter the arena and confront China. Well, we're definitely going to keep uh, following these stories. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Lydia Curtis, Thomas O'Rourke, and Professor Gerald Horn for their contributions to the show. Oh, and also John Jeter for his contribution to the show as well. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. You can also follow me on Instagram. The podcast is on all your podcast platforms under On The Ground Show with Esther Avera. The music we played this hour included A Few Words for the Firing Squad by Run The Jewels, Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, and I Don't Want Nobody to Give Me Nothing, Open Up the Door, I'll Get It Myself by James Brown. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you